Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 49. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com, and our very special returning guest is Mike Holling from Shard Capital. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Morning. Thank you. Mike, thank you for coming on the show again. We really enjoyed your podcast last time. Just for the benefit of the listeners, could you give us a little bit of information about yourself, please? Well, yeah, so um, at Shard, I work in a role as CIO for a managed account platform. And we're also setting up a new business which focuses on providing investment advice for high net worth and ultra high net worth US clients. And my background was primarily in convertible bonds for about 15 years. And subsequently, I went on the buy side and I've managed money on a more absolute return type basis um, since about 2002, 2003, around that. Fantastic. And uh, since you were last on the podcast, how have you seen the the investment landscape change? Because obviously a lot happened towards the end of 2018 yeah. and a lot is happening now as we speak. Yeah, well, I forget when exactly I was last on, but um, certainly since the middle of last year, a big part of the thesis that um, I've been working on is, which I don't think is particularly insightful, by the way, is that we've got to a stage now where I think markets control central banks and not the other way around. And that whilst Mr. Powell and his colleagues may talk the talk and have a genuine desire to normalise interest rates, they're going to reach a point where markets don't like the medicine that's been administered. And of course, Summer last year was difficult to tell exactly when that might be, but I think the premise was that at some point something had to give. And obviously that happened around November, December last year. And it looks like Powell has blinked and the Fed has paused. Um, and so now we're in a situation where markets have sort of recovered most of the losses from from December into January. And I suppose we're just waiting to see whether the Fed is – because they now say that they're sort of open to, to pausing for – and to examine what the data tells them. But I think the, from my point of view anyway, I think that you know maybe the Fed does one more symbolic rate rise in, in March, I think, depending on data, but I think they'd like to do that. And then I think the kind of economic big picture we're seeing is sort of economies globally are cooling down, evidence that consumers are maxed out. And so I think that possibly we, we see the Fed even beginning to ease rates at the back end of this year and into 2020. So, so at a very, very big picture level, I mean, obviously, there's the China trade talks, which I think will conclude um, positively because it's in other country's interest to prolong this. So I think, you know, in, in broad terms, we're looking for maybe an okay first six months and then maybe a more challenging second six months of 2019. So the main lens for which you look at the markets through is is the obviously you look holistically or, or macro in the macro terms but you also look at the bond markets or your focus is on the bond markets is that correct well it's multi-asset actually so um you know i come from a fixed income back when i first started in this business it was it was as a fixed income broker so everything from sort of treasury bills to bonds with warrants and convertibles and the whole range and, you know, without being too um, disrespectful to equity investors, I've always felt that fixed income investors have a better grasp of the big picture by almost by definition than, than equity investors. So I've always have looked at a prism from uh, investment prism from a, from a fixed income point of view. And, yeah, we invest across asset classes. So we, we can invest in fixed income, we can invest in equities, alternatives, infrastructure, anything really. Um, but I think that that. In order to be able to position the chess pieces on the board, you have to have a, I think, a, an idea of, because I mean, we have a sort of, let's call it the pump and the pin theory that, that, you know, interest rates work as a pump and as a pin. So when you when you lower interest rates, you basically pump up financial assets, and when you try and raise rates, the, so basically the pin that bursts financial assets, and that's fine up to a point where you let markets actually take their medicine. But now that we've got a situation where, as I said earlier, it seems to me that that we've got so much debt has been taken on globally that I I can't see a time when interest rates are normalised. I hope I'll live another 20 or 30 years, but in my lifetime. Do you think there's a a risk, Mike, that the the Fed, the Fed in particular, as you say, sort of power, you get the feeling that power has blinked, that they've, they've, they're, potential, they're on the cusp of losing an awful lot of credibility. 
I think they are, and it's a shame because I thought Powell was more volkerish, um, and it seems that he's even he's had to sort of bow to this chorus of. And I can't see how anybody in their right mind could object to what he was trying to do. But anyway, the, the, but yes, I do me, think for me, for me, for me, there seems to be this kind of element of sort of emperor's new clothes. That on the one hand, the, the U.S. economy is ostensibly you know, doing gangbusters, and you know, most, I think, objective, rational people would say there's a risk of potentially, if anything, overheating. And then on the other hand, you're saying, well, it can't be, it can't be that strong if it can't cope with exactly. Fed funds being higher than two and a half percent. Very good point, Tim. Exactly. I mean, how can it be a healthy economy if two and a half percent interest rates gets people panicking and markets falling ten or fifteen percent? I think this is then what this is then what you have when you have basically when the first as you sort of suggested earlier, you know, the the the, the central banks brackets the Fed in this case have become um, guy, you know, they've become driven by the markets rather than the other way around. And then you've got a, a kind of market psychology, which is like you know market market practice being conducted by a three year old that basically refuses to hear the word no. So it's, like, uh, it's like, like, like living in a sweet shop with a bunch of three-year-olds. It's, that's a good analogy. I mean, I think that um, because we're in this position, you know, honestly, we, we, we can't raise rates. And so, you know, we, we run the risk that um, markets keep trending higher. And, and the next time markets try and correct or, you know, get we, we're trying to get some sort of price discovery that – not just the Fed, but the ECB, Bank of Japan, Bank of China even are now beginning to sort of relax, um, you know, lowering, lowering the loan reserve requirement and pumping a bit of liquidity back. And at some stage, um, I think that what gives, and I could be wrong, but this is just my theory, but I think what gives are currencies. I think that's where the fracture will occur in the system. And that's the way that you'll clear out this excess debt and how we get inflation back in the system is by the sort of emperor's got no clothes moment where people realize that fiat currencies are a busted flush busted flush because you know how how long are you going to put up with people just printing money and buying assets and printing which is why we've seen that you know what way crypto okay it's very early stages but the idea of a decentralized digital currency or the idea that we like Precious metals, or and I think that maybe it's too early in the play to to move into alternative forms of of means of exchange and stores of value and that kind of thing. But I think that's down the road, and I think I think that's where where, where it might end up going. Do you, Mike, do you think that the UK is in the same position whereby we can't take higher interest rates? Also, of course. And and do you think that the a uh, way to protect yourself here could be crypto and gold or one or the well, other or both? I, I, I hesitate to recommend crypto at this stage. Um, my, my objection is to crypto too. I like the, the concept, but two, two things to object. One is that if you can keep forking a currency, then you know, you're going down the sort of fiat kind of route. And more importantly, I, I, despite people screaming that it is a safe the, 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 the way it's stored is safe. I'm, not, I'm still to be persuaded that wallets can't get hacked and that you couldn't wake up one day and find that your money's been... I know that steps have been taken to improve security. And the, so I wouldn't be too keen at this stage to recommend crypto. I think everybody should have gold in their portfolio, a small amount at this stage. And, you know, we're looking at... I really like the idea of gold miners. And you've seen quite a lot of M&A, you know, Barrick buying, um, Rand Gold and Newmont buying. And I think that, that gold miners really... I've spent sort of five or six years in the doldrums. And I think in terms of, you could never call a mining stock a value stock, but in terms of a contrarian trade. Um, well, it, can, think, it, can, it can be if it's trading cheaply enough. I mean, just on the basis of whether it's cash flow or price to book or, you know, that there, I mean, the reason, the only reason I mention it is because, you know, we, it, within our practice, we, we, we own value stocks and we also own miners. And there is now an overlap, whereas, you know the, the one the one error we made back in you know effectively let's call it 2011 was that we bought into the sort of macro thesis that gold was the price of gold was going to trend higher because of all the kind of inflationary things that that are now actually part of the discussion. I mean we, you've already touched on them just now, um, but we bought into the idea that gold was simply going higher, and on that basis it didn't really matter what the valuations of the companies were. Now we treat 
gold miners the same way we treat any other company, which is this is above a certain level, we're not going to pay up for them. So right. I think it is possible to have both. Yeah. No, I quite like gold miners as a, as a, for, for, but again, it, just like anything, it's, it's like timing these things. And, um, you know, I just, just can't see how central banks around the world can ever regain control of um, monetary policy. So which currencies do you think would be the worst, the, the best or the worst? Uh, superficially, the euro is the currency you really love to hate, okay, because it's got True. so many embedded problems. The problem with the euro is that when it fractures, and I think it is a case of when, you don't know what you'll end up with. Will the euro comprise... Yeah, do you end up with German euros or Greek euros? Or... In which case, it's up 30%. Or will the euro comprise the drachma, the lira, the peseta, in which case, it's down 30%. <laughs> Yeah. And that's the problem. You don't know which way it's going to fracture, which makes shorting the euro a difficult trade. That said, um, you know, with, with all the problems that, you know, with, with the Italians, with the elections in Parliament in May, with you can see that with the gilets jaunes, the tensions under the surface in Europe are really palpable. So, so, but to answer your question, I mean, I think currency will be, always has been, but will become increasingly an asset allocation decision that really makes a massive difference. And, um, you know, the, the headline currencies like the dollar, the euro, the pound, the Aussie, the Canadian, even the yen, although the Japanese do have quite extensive foreign assets, but even the yen at some stage, I think, even the Swissy. So, so, you know, I don't know, where do you look at? Sing dollar? Maybe the, the you see I think that already it's happening behind the scenes. Well, even not even behind the scenes, but I think the Chinese and the Russians are quite rightly trying to get away from like a sort of dollar standard and trying to find ways in which they can trade. The the, the Indians are buying oil from Iran now, settling in rupees. The Chinese and the um, Russians trade oil. Um, they settle in renminbi and in, in, in ruble. Um, so you know, getting away from this position where the dollar is. I mean, I don't think the dollar will lose reserve status anytime soon, but, you know, these countries don't have to hang around. And, and I I, th I think that at some stage the Chinese will make a play for the yuan or renminbi becoming um, a reserve currency, if not the global reserve currency. And they're quietly, I mean, I know you know the statistic, but the Chinese are the biggest producers of gold. They don't export a single ounce. The Russians have been busy buying gold. They buy a lot of gold to, to, to back the ruble, I think. So although it sounds counterintuitive, and I think that the Chinese are probably quite keen to um, to still run a, a regime where they have the option of depreciating the, um, the renminbi, that some of these currencies longer term might be a better store of value. Um, maybe that's a contentious thing to say, but, and we're looking maybe five, ten years down the road, but I mean, Mike, Mike a, couple, a couple of things from, from what you've just said. If I, I, I take the point about you know the trickiness of, of, of taking an anti-euro position because you don't know which euro you may ultimately end up with. On that basis, isn't it then uh, is, isn't then a plausible response to that to say, okay, well, I'm not going to speculate against the euro, but I will have a pop at, for example, the bonds of you know this country brackets Italy question mark or that country. So you can you can sort of play play the weakness by effectively the potential for rising yields in that market. Isn't isn't that a legitimate way to do it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, and, and a lot of people made a lot of money last year shorting Italian bonds. Um, the, the problem you've got, as we've said, is that in the, is the is the Bundesbank going to blink, or are they going to? Because Draghi, when does Draghi retire? I think it's September, isn't it? Sometime in the next twelve months, anyway. And I think that the idea is that he'll be replaced by a German central banker. Um, and so then the question is, how long do they allow the ECB to effectively monetize Italy's debts, Turkey's debts, Greece's debts? So, yes, I think that is a way you could do it. But, but you're gambling that the central banks abandon Italy, um, which probably would be a good thing for everybody, including the Italians. But I'm not sure that we're at that point yet. It's, it's a difficult trade to put on. I 100% I, I, I hear where you're coming from, but um, maybe it might I guess, I guess the, other, the other question is you, you talk about sort of the, those currencies which are maybe more or less likely to, you know, to experience pronounced weakness. Um, would, would it not be 
plausible to again in terms of trying to find a roadmap for this and it's clearly a bit like sort of playing three-dimensional chess or something but would one roadmap not be well actually which governments have got the most gold because that 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 I would argue that that is a sort of as a, as a quick and as a quick and dirty mechanism. That's not a bad way of assessing which currencies are actually going to be relatively robust. Well, that's why I kind of like the ruble, but then you've got the political element of all the sanctions and you know, um, and I quite like the yuan longer term or the renminbi longer term um, because they are both building up gold reserves, and I think at some stage they, you know, their currencies will be implicitly backed by gold. Um, and that that will put them in quite a strong position. Do we know what the US are doing with regard to gold, or is it just opaque and we don't know whether they're buying it or selling it? I don't know. When was the last time Fort Knox was audited? Tim, you might know this was at least thirty or forty years ago, isn't it? I mean, I, that, that's my understanding. I don't know. I, there was there's been a lot of talk about you know basically uh, the Fed opening its the Fed lifting its kimono. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> But I, I'm I'm not sure whether anything came of that. I mean, there's a lot of people have said, look, if you if if the gold is there, then just show it and and stop, you know, just stop stop the debate, stop the the constant questioning. But I, I'm not aware that's 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 got that's, there's been any headway in that. It's not, I guess it's one of those things that if they do show it, then people will just say, oh, that was CGI. Because the I don't know if you know, but there are, <laughs> there, are, there are people that think the Earth is still flat, and it's just. So amusing. There's a uh, a flat Earth conference in America, and it it just sort of boggles the mind, really. I guess for, for those that aren't convinced, there's no amount of evidence that will convince them. Um, What's the phrase? There are none so blind as those that will not see. Yeah, or he, he who's convinced against his will is of the same mind. But in this, your, your day- turn, Mike. Your turn, Mike. <laughs> no, I don't have a witty little. <laughs> But it's it's just quite amazing. So whatever evidence you put, they just say, "Oh yeah, that was CGI by NASA, and it's all a conspiracy." It's it's absolutely crazy. I mean, just get in an airplane, have a look out the window, and you'll see the curvature yeah. of the Earth. That's simple, mm-hmm. isn't it? But anyway, I digress. So no, I think that it's um it's tricky to see how this plays out. But I mean, in my, my I really spend a lot of time thinking about currency allocations um, because. Just intuitive, you know, something's going to have to give at some stage. You can't just keep deficit financing and printing money, really, because at one day somebody's going to wake up and go, hang on a minute. I think one of the, uh, one of the reasons I'm drawn to your argument on this is that, you know, it, it is, seems to be clear from the history of the last 10 years that if governments and central banks make a concerted effort to, to, to let's say, buy stuff, if they're buying bonds or maybe in the case of China, then they're buying equities or whatever, then they've got a reasonable chance of success. Anybody who was alive and working in 1992 knows that the currency markets dwarf everything. Yeah. There was mm. one last market that you can't manipulate is foreign. Yeah. No, it's true. And um, you just have to see the, the devastating impact that a depreciating currency can have on your net worth. And ask any Venezuelan, ask any Argentinian. Ask my father, who lived in Latin America in the 70s and wiped his pension out. Um, you know, in, well, ask anybody who lived in the UK in the 1970s as well, I mean, inflation at 14, 15%. And the way you, I think that we're going to get inflation this time isn't demand pull because the consumer's maxed out. I think it'll be more the cost push variety where currencies eventually just collapse and um, everything costs more in. in, in in the base currency so timing is difficult but, but I'm pretty convinced that's coming at some stage with regard to currency though I guess it has to you can't currencies can't all fall against each other I know you've alluded to which ones might might do well but it, it I suppose G7 I have um, a thesis okay well only in the sense that um, central banks do do, do, do well, and, and as they should do talk to each other and but you're right you can't depreciate you know, if, if you want to sell euro to buy dollars, by definition, you're selling one by the other. But if you could have a situation where, and it did this ventures into conspiracy theory, but but it, it might work that you know major central banks of the world, Bank of Japan, ECB, UK, Canada, America, agree that you know what we're going to depreciate all our currencies by ten percent or fifteen percent versus gold or something you know as an anchor. Um, and have a maybe a semi-peg or a floating peg or something like that. Um, 
which which maybe brings us to the realms of SDRs or working somewhere in which you can. But basically, so you kind of reset down 10 or 15% against, and that, that would push up gold or whatever the central base was for, or it could be a gold, silver, platinum, palladium complex at, at the center of. That, that way, at least, they'd be able to debris, as you said, without sort of race to the bottom and competitive devaluation, which has been going on behind the scenes anyway, which is one of the objections that Americans have had with, with the Chinese in the past. Well, in fairness, they have um, had a bit of a stab at um, maintaining a, a reasonable rate. So I don't know, but, but you're right. You, otherwise, you're right. You can't, you know, one country could sneak in there and just devalue. Um, but otherwise, you can't get away with it. You'd also have to have a look at the impact on their bond market and their stock market because the FTSE compared to European stocks is performing much better. Um, and although there's this idea that you've, you've got to keep sort of being negative on the pound all the time with all the Brexit talk just constantly skewed towards the negative side, they seem to miss out in that analysis that the FTSE is actually doing all right. And it was yeah. very amusing that straight after the defeat of May in, in the Commons that, that all the news wires just did not know what to say about how sterling had gone up. And it was like typical normal market behavior, market trading as usual, but they couldn't pin the tail on the donkey with the news. So they had to sort of scratch their heads and and uh, do a complete, you know, sort of 180 on what they'd normally say, because that's, that's how I, markets I work. I don't know if you remember, Paul, the, um, the, there was a spitting image sketch. We're going back to the 80s now. Um, and they did a pastiche of Call My Bluff. <laughs> I think it was called my bluff. And so the, the <laughs> definition that someone had, the, the definition that someone had to read was basically coming third in a by-election. And so you have all these politicians <laughs> saying, well, actually, it's a victory, really. You know, you, it's, it's always kind of, you got all this nonsense going on. And that's kind of how I feel about nearly all of market commentary. It's like, yeah, what on earth? What on, how on earth do we, do we explain, you know, X, Y, Z? And, yeah. and you know. And I'm amazed it's taken us this long to, to get onto the topic of Brexit. I thought we'd be pretty much at Brexit now, like a like a rat of a drainpipe at the start of the podcast. But uh, I mean, what, what what's your take on Brexit at the moment, Mike? Do you think it's going to happen? You know, something ironically, I'm actually quite bullish on Sterling because although I'm Brexiteer and I still think we're better off out than in, having seen the way that the EU has dealt with, you know, um, Greece, with Portugal, with Ireland, with Italy. You know, the list is long and not very distinguished. Um, you always knew they were going to make this as difficult as possible. Um, so, I, and after everything, and, you know, Theresa made two wasted years of doing nothing, basically. So, so long story short, I would, I, I'm pretty, pretty sure Article 50 will be extended because I just don't think we have the time to do anything. So, fine. And I think there will be a fudge. And, you know, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I'd be deeply disappointed, but I wouldn't be surprised if Brexit's abandoned. Um, in which case, you know, sterling will go off quite sharply. Um, so, so to answer your question, um, I, I think that if we get anything, it'll either be a soft Brexit or no Brexit. Uh, I, I can't see a hard Brexit, much as I personally wouldn't think it's, it's not the end of the world, but um, I can't see that. What's your take on it, Tim? Um, I mean, uh, there's, there's my head and there's my heart. My heart definitely wants hard Brexit, harder, faster now, please. Yesterday Brexit. Um, yeah, but but I, I, you have to be kind of pragmatic. And, and you know, the, the, the critical issue, and it's very, very straightforward, seems to me, um, and I think, uh, you know, a number of commentators picked up on this in the last few days. Uh, you know, the, 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 the reason for this crisis is quite straightforward. The people want one thing and voted on it, and Parliament wants another. And the issue is, Parliament you know, should basically get back in its box. I do not see why anybody has to tolerate people like Dominic Grieve, uh, who, who seems to believe that his single intelligence is worth more than 17.4 million votes. And, and the other thing is, that I'm sure you all know the stats, but apparently, I haven't checked them, but I some good source. It's only 13, wrong, 8% of our exports go to Europe, which accounts for 13% of GDP. It doesn't strike me as a train smash if we leave on a hard Brexit. And the problem is that because the mainstream media is controlled by sort of big business, and big business 
can cover the cost of all the regulation and all the stupid rules. Whereas the small and medium-sized companies overwhelmingly would be, you know, for a regime that got rid of all this ridiculous bureaucracy and regulation. But of course, their voice isn't represented because they don't have any standing. You know, it's, it's the big companies that pay the PR people, that brief the media, that spin the story. I just, and I don't know why people haven't made more of a point of, the, of this, you know, 13% of GDP, am I getting our niggas in a twist? It's just ridiculous. It's like what the uh, late great William Goldman said, nobody really knows anything. And it's it's my view of that is, although he said it about screenwriting, it's absolutely true about just about everything, you know, so that people have an opinion that it's going to be negative. And, but remember, people said exactly the same thing about Sterling not going in into the euro and mm. and what happened there there are a lot of entities out there that don't even deserve the oxygen of oxygen and i'm i'm minded to remember that in the you know in the run up to the launch of the euro the economist for example uh said oh, it, we, it's absolutely imperative that we're part of the euro you know the eurozone the euro currency project etc cetera, etc cetera. and then sometime after 2000 or 2002 i remember a piece in the economist that sort of rather shamefacedly admitted that that even despite all of their you know their worst you know warnings and misgivings there was more money being managed in St James's than in the whole of Frankfurt so mm. the idea that the UK had <laughs> somehow been you know been disadvantaged by not being a part was a complete cobbler's yeah. and you know and and the the real concern the absolutely genuine concern i have is well it, it's it's twofold but the the issue is the, the the perception I think widely shared amongst the chattering classes is that FTSE and the sterling reflect uh, Brexit, yeah. and I would say they don't. They if if they reflect anything, they're reflecting the risk, the shock risk of a Corbyn McDonnell government. And I agree. The, and the reason why Brexit is so important in relation to this is that. And I think this is where I would advise anybody, including the likes of Mr. Grieve, is, you know, be careful what you wish for. If the it basically if Brexit is uh, thwarted or we get basically remain as, as a sort of, you know, as a, as, a, as a compromise, which looks increasingly likely, then it is not really worth having a vote in this country anymore because it, it clearly doesn't mean anything, certainly not a plebiscite. And so, A, I think people are going to be utterly furious. There's going to be blood on the streets. More to the point, though, if Brexit doesn't doesn't happen uh, in the way that 17 and a half million people wanted it to two years ago, then the UK will dis UK and UK assets will deserve to trade on banana republic multiples. Well, there's a very and big that, risk of that. And that's the issue. And that's the issue. And I think people, people are not not aware and not acknowledging that risk. Be careful what you wish for. Absolutely right. And in, in, in fact, some of the discussions I've had with people who are very staunch Remainers, and you know, I'm I'm not I'm not here to to argue with them about their views because it's again, it's like you can't once you get into this, people do not change their view. It's like religion; you can't change yeah, yeah. people's views about religion. It just no matter what evidence or lack thereof you you can produce, um, it's it's they believe what they believe, but. What gets me is that the people in the markets, the, the smart people out there who know how to deal with a collapsing stock market, a collapsing bond market, a collapsing currency, they know that you that moving into gold, moving into you know uh, overseas assets like say in, in Japan or, or into the yen, they're going to do that. But the vast majority of people are not going to be able to. So. Be careful what you wish for. One of the risks, I mean, I'm old enough, I'm afraid, to, to remember exchange controls. And um, we've lived in a world for the last 30, 40 years where you can send anything you want around the world. And there's, again, if things get tight, I mean, if we get a Labour government in this country, led by Corbyn, I'm 90% I'm certain we'd have, to, we'd have to have exchange controls because the pound would just go into freefall. You know, you and again in Europe, if things start getting stressed in Europe, and again, you could have exchange controls. So you're right; it's too late to try and move assets once the controls are in place. So it's prudent ex ante to have a diversified portfolio that's got assets custodied and denominated, you know, in yen or in sing dollar or outside of the country. Um, and again, it's it's 
Like, why wouldn't you do that? Because the cost of doing it is nothing. Now, the upside, even if it's a 2 or 3% probability that it happens, um, keeps you nice and safe. The other thing I just wanted to mention, and I know this is close to Tim's heart, but in another argument for Brexit, not that we really need it, but, but, but you probably know that in 2010, Asian GDP accounted for 20% of global GDP. Last year, it accounted for 28% of global GDP, and it's forecast by Standard Chartered to be up to 35%. A third of the global economy will be generated in Asia. And we want to I trade mean, them. And, 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 and you don't want to put yourself in a position where you can trade freely with Asian economies, yeah. really? Yeah. I mean, what are these yeah. remainers thinking of? Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it's going. You can, Europe, I'm afraid, is the past. There's nothing, I mean, I love French people, I love Spanish, Italians, and my wife grew up in France. And this isn't an anti-Europe thing. This is an anti-bureaucracy and statist thing, you know. And I just don't see what Remainers see that we don't see. Because the logical path for me is to, as Tim said, get out as soon as you can. Maybe it just comes down to an, an aversion to change, that people would rather... People would rather le- live in the prison they've been in than risk you know, than simply take the risk of walking out the door. I think you're right there, Tim, because if you look at the currencies or the euro and the way it's been affecting the poorer European nations and the trouble that it's caused and the unemployment, and yet there still is an uprising about them leaving the euro, even in Cyprus, where they they had exchange controls and their bank accounts were tapped in to, to pay for the, the, you know, the government debt, which is just, I know. it makes it's you crazy, speechless. It? Um, I mean, the, you're right. It makes me angry. And my kids aren't even involved at this stage, but this whole generation in Southern Europe has been sacrificed on the altar of some political currency experiment, which has gone horribly wrong. And you wouldn't mind if there was fiscal transfers in Europe and all the surpluses that Germany are running redistributed. You know, the Germans ran an 8% current account surplus last year, which which goes against Maastricht and every other, you know, I think you're allowed a 3% surplus. But nobody says, boo, you know. Why isn't that surplus redistributed? Because the Germans don't want to. And that's why I'm saying it's something's going to give in Europe. This isn't an anti-German thing, you know. No, I mean, no, of course not. Pat on the back, they've got a very, very productive economy. And well done them. But whoever thought that you could join a single currency 18 years ago, whenever it was, and that miraculously productivity in Greece would match Germany? I mean, really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's just laughable. It's, it's, I mean, having... it's amazing because in our memories, it's so, I don't know about you, Mike but, and, and Tim, but it, to me, it just feels like not that long ago when, when we had the, the crises, the currency crises in the 90s late 90s just before the euro was put together in 99 and they were massive crises for good reason and the reasons why we don't have a well if we if we take the logical conclusion of of a single currency if you're saying that the drachma should be as strong as the deutschmark should be as strong as the italian lira which should also be equally as strong as the french franc if we take that as a as an argument, why do you need the euro? Why can't they just trade at parity to each other and not move? Now, if you if you think oh, about it, if you, if you take the euro away and just say no, 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 you've all got to trade at the same level, but not not for a couple of years, just so you can, you know, get fit and pass your medical and then eat burgers and chips and uh, and and not work out afterwards but you've got to do this for a very long time and you you probably say well hang on a minute you can't keep a currency together like that or these economies in 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 harmony for so that's impossible that's like playing four pianos at the same time you can't do that but that's what they've tried to do you know and, yeah. and because it hasn't obviously it was never going to work and because it hasn't worked this is the mess that we're in there's a guy J- James O'Shaughnessy who's a US um research a fund manager that i follow uh, and very much respect he came out with a belter on which is this i think this alone is is, is worth the free cost of twitter and it's a, a tweet he put out last week which is it's a quote from voltaire it is difficult to free fools from the chains they revere <laughs> it's true isn't it yeah i yeah i don't know whether it's an experience thing whether it's just because we've experienced and we've seen the data and how the markets 
of trade, how Italy's always had high inflation, how Greece has always had high inflation and Germany hasn't. And this is going back over 100 years, which, again, in market terms, isn't very long, but it's long enough for you to know that it's not ain't going to suddenly stop in 1999 just because you're sticking a currency together. You know, you just want to glue, right. glue the euro together and, and then hope that, hope that it works. Well, one thing that worries me, and I remember sitting in dealing room in 1989 and um, coming to work one day, the Berlin Wall's come down. And that was just an absolutely seminal moment in global history. And yeah, you know, we'd known about the Warsaw Pact and Perestroika and, you know, people had talked about it for a few years. And, and then it just, it, it's the whole Hemingway thing about, gradually and then all of a sudden. The point I'm trying to make is that that was a shock to everybody. And I remember that I was at Morgan Stanley at the time, the global economists were on the first, um, conference call, and it just was a massive change for the global economy and the geopolitical system. But it, it just suddenly came. And so here we are with Europe, you know, bubbling under the surface with France and Italy and blah, and people just... I wouldn't be surprised if you come in one day and, and something dramatic has happened. I don't know what... But I think there's a bit of a complacency out there that, no, nah, no, nah, this will go on forever. And it doesn't. You know, things change very suddenly and mm. sometimes for no perceptible reason. So, again, in terms of asset allocation and portfolio diversification, and, you know, surely it's better, even if Asia goes into a recession, you know, whatever, at least you're investing in a part of the world that has a fighting chance of recovery rather than a sclerotic part of the world that has a much harder chance of recovery, which is already heavily indebted. And do you know what I mean? So so in terms of trying to position for next week or next month, waste of time. You know, we need to be thinking months, years down the road. And I wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but Berlin Wall coming down. Did you remember that, Timmy? Was it a shock to you? I mean, it was a shock to me, but... I didn't see it coming. I mean, I was a student at the time, so I, I wasn't that world, worldly wise. But uh, no, I, I, I didn't foresee that that event happening. Yeah, and it, yet it changed so much. But the, I mean, I think the the, the Berlin Wall thing so, is, is huge. is hugely interesting to the extent that uh, I, I'm trying to remember who who, who first made this point. Um, it was Dylan Grice, I think, at, at a Money Week conference, the first time I heard it. But he, he made the point that the, the Soviet Union, Russia was born in the chaos of the revolution in 1917. And then pretty much every year thereafter, quite sensible, objective foreign observers would say, well, this system cannot last, uh, particularly communism, but it, it, it cannot last, it's going to break down. And the Berlin Wall didn't fall until 1989. Well, that's two, three generations. So uh, what I, I just think that's a hugely insightful observation to the extent that an utterly dysfunctional system, brackets, the euro zone, brackets, can outlive everybody's worst expectations because yeah. that's just, you know, mm. this is just a natural human you know, uh, willingness to go along with crap. I hear what you're saying, but I, I, I think the, the, the differentiating factor surely has to be that, and I knew you jokingly may disagree, but uh, Russia was a totalitarian state and you know, Stalin annihilated tens of millions of people, as did Mao. Europe's not quite that bad. You know, people do have a voice, they can protest, and they do protest. So maybe that will expedite the collapse of the system more than a totalitarian system that lasted 70 years. I don't know, but hopefully that's the case. Because the sooner the euro gets ripped up and replaced by something that actually works, the better for everybody. It's like the the case of Iceland, isn't it, with... Um during the financial crisis they, they basically had to start again and it was it was uh, it was a reset that was a positive thing whereas we haven't actually had the reset yet and we we're not saying it's going to be pretty it's not but it's it's inevitable it's just an it's just a question of when and it's again i mean uh, i went to see darkest hour recently and you know you forget just how back to the wall we were and how so many people were for appeasement. And you could understand why actually suing for peace actually made kind of logical sense in 1940. And, um, hey, you know, let's look after ourselves. But, you know, sometimes you've got to take the tough decisions and make the difficult. And, and yes, it'll be two steps back. But, you know, for the brighter future. Yeah. And by the way, I think if, if, if we really had said, and what I don't understand is this, is why does Corbyn want to take no deal off the table? If the Europeans won't take no deal off the table, 
why do you want to go in negotiating where the Europeans have a stronger hand? If the Europeans were to take no deal off the table, then maybe, okay, fine, we can take no deal off the table because they'd have to compromise then. But I just don't get why. Anyway, that's a slight little digression there. But, well, I'm, I'm amazed uh, that Jeremy Corbyn can tie his shoelaces. How do you know? Have you seen him tie them? Well, that's true, actually. He may, may use Velcro shoes. <laughs> and, and, not, and not get them to work. What do you think the chances really are of a Corbyn government? Though? Well, the, the issue is they only have to be above nil. And that's that's the problem. So, I mean, it, I, I, I mean I'll let Mike my, my answer. But it just seems to me that we're in such a weird environment. We're in such a strange world now that, that Brexit, Brexit plus Trump. Uh, and I used to be wary of conflating them. Now I think they are quite legitimately, quite legitimately comparable. The, the analogy I would make is that let's just take Brexit in isolation, because I can't speak for the US voter. I can only speak for, my, for myself as a, as a Brit. The, the, the Brexit vote, the referendum, was like lifting up a gigantic rock. And I think everybody in the entire country has just been shocked at the, at the, at the kind of nasty, nasty little things that are scuttling around underneath and that's across politics the media the culture everything that's uh that's quite an image there tim so is that why you've been playing supreme commander is yes it it's my it's my, frustration. It's my escape, escape, escape from the world and you'd be you'd be surprised how satisfying it is to nuke everything inside <laughs> <laughs> just let's hope donald trump doesn't start playing it <laughs> well yeah we but basically we might have to edit this out in case uh because we're, we, we know we're heard in very high places. <laughs> Frighteningly, apparently, according, and, and according to betting sites in the States, favoured Trump being re-elected. And I think maybe it's because the Democrats offer no credible alternative at the moment, and maybe in two years they will. But um, apparently, you know. I've never seen politics in such a poor state globally. I think that it's been like this for some time. I think that, you know, for 20 or 30 years, to, to Tim's point earlier on, politicians seem to think that somehow their intellect is vastly superior to everybody else's and that they can ignore the common man and the common woman and just, you know, ride roughshod over public opinion. And and I think that, you know, it's, it's something that breeds slowly and it takes a long time like a volcano to erupt, but eventually it does erupt and it results in things like Trump, the government in Italy and the government in Hungary and the Polish and even in Spain are moving to the right now because people have been just marginalised and ignored for so long. And I think like Brexit as well. I think people finally thought they had a vote, thought they had a voice. And they're now finding that the political classes ignore them anyway. So who's to be surprised at the anger under the surface? Do you have a broad brush view of how you think this this year will pan out in terms of the market? In, in very broad brush, okay, I think that there's room for the Fed to raise rates one more time. I think they might do that. I think QT will continue. I don't think they'll... So that will add to liquidity constraints. Although there's a very good piece of research out from Macro Strategy, um, which talks about the Treasury releasing some of the money they've got of the Fed and putting it back into the system in the first quarter, which might help to liquidify the system. But that stops in Q2. But anyway, um, on a bigger picture, um, the broad brushes, I think, okay, we're, we're okay for the first quarter, maybe even first six months and after that begin to batten the hatches again which is one reason i quite like u.s treasuries and i quite like because where else in the world do you get a even if it's a zero nominal yield at least it's something and if you can hedge the currency which i think you're going to have to with the dollar um you may not get a return in, in on the um on the interest huh? because the interest you generate will be used to pay the hedging cost but you should get a gain in nominal terms because I can see rates in the U.S. heading maybe even sub 2% by this time next year. It's so funny, far. Mike, you, you mentioned um, you know, nom zero nominal yields. It reminds me of the, um, the Monty Python, the three Yorkshiremen sketch. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like people going, oh, I remember when I used to get zero nominal yields. <laughs> luxury, <laughs> luxury. <laughs> I used to get negative. Yeah. Oh, we used to dream of getting negative yields. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it ridiculous that we're talking about something quite serious, but it, it is farcical. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. It is farcical. And, and, and the other thing is with, with, with negative rates as well, actually, um, Russell Nicker wrote a very good piece recently. He was making the point about 
you know, everybody thinks of the positive sides of our consumers and robot. But banks and life insurance companies are getting absolutely smoked. And the point he made was in between 1945 and 2000 in Japan, one life insurer went bust. In 2007, of them went bust, technically insolvent, because obviously with the yield curve collapsing in Japan, they couldn't match their assets and liabilities. And the point he's making is that in Germany now, life insurers are really stretched because with negative rates in German bonds, real rates, these guys are really struggling. And he's not saying it's going to happen, but don't be surprised if German and other life insurance companies need to recapitalize because it really is punitive for the financial sector these negative and lower nominal real rates and actually there was a there was a I, I, I hesitate to quote but something along the lines of that from the fed funds went from 25 bips up to two and a quarter in that period a number of major funds in the u.s improved dramatically over that short period because they were now able to lock into longer term treasuries yielding Two and a half, three percent, three point two percent, or whatever, and you know they were able to sort of get a better balance of asset, and that's all come to a halt now. But it just goes to show how powerful it is in terms of because so many pension funds around the world are just underfunded. Um, that's again something that people stick their head in the sand and ignore, and that's going to come back and bite people eventually. Tim, what would you say about the the idea of investing in treasuries? Because I, I think you'd, you'd probably be looking for perhaps. Asian government bonds. Well, I mean that 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 certainly used to be what we were invested in. So up until probably two years ago, uh, we had some investment. Our, our own, our only real, certainly sovereign bond investments were in a vehicle called the Wealthy Nations Bond Fund. And the clue there is in the title that if you're going to own bonds, which are liabilities, you want to own bonds issued by creditor countries rather than debtor countries. And just as you know, you mentioned earlier that you know that, that Asian GDP is going to Asia is going to be an increasingly large component of world GDP, perhaps as much as a third within the next few years. In this, by the same token, many of the world's most uh, creditworthy countries are also Asian uh, governments and Asian economies. Uh, the the problem is that the yields are now so pitifully low that it's probably not worth the risk anymore. But certainly that used to be the case. Now I, I absolutely share Mike's view that I think that there is some value probably is a safe haven as much as anything in, in US Treasury debt. And that's perverse given that, you know, their national debt is, you know, is it whatever it is, $21 trillion. I mean, the the heart this is the, this is really gets to the heart of the debate that the entire world is just in a crazy place and it's been in a crazy place for not just the last 10 years in terms of QE and ZERP, but it's been in a crazy place since Nixon took the dollar off gold 50 years ago, nearly. And on that basis, it's you know, I think everyone is sort of. I mean, I, I, I was going to ask Mike, and he's, again, he's welcome to, to chip in. Why, why he thought the markets did what they did last year? I mean, I, I've never seen over a discrete twelve-month period, other than two thousand and eight, I've never seen a year where just about everything, you know, spectacularly failed to work. You know, the degree of, you know, of, of failure across assets, across regions, across geographies, across sectors, across asset types, pretty much universal. I mean, that that's. You know, just odd, and I'm just curious as to yeah, I mean, I, why that happened. Well, I, I, look, I don't know have the answer, I'm afraid, but I, I have got theories, and one of the theories that we've been working on, school work on, is liquidity in markets is grossly missed. Yeah. So, you know, because of Solvency Two, Basel Three, okay, you know, most market makers and most banks run very, very flat books now. They don't run big proprietary books because the cost of capital is too expensive. And the risk involved is too high. So liquidity in markets is really not nearly as good as it used to be. It's the first point. Second point is that certainly in the States, and I'm sure it's the same elsewhere, something close to, and don't quote me, 90% of daily turnover in the, in the US stock exchange is high frequency trading, which is just a whole bunch of algorithms trying to nip in front of each other and tick a little basis point here and there. And all these algos are written by people that use historic data to try and predict what's going to happen in the future. And we've come from an extraordinary benign. And and, and, and if, if we are in a re- regime change, which is rising rates, which is where we were last year, I think some of the algos maybe weren't ready for that kind of a regime change and maybe some of the signals. So you've got situations where, you know, a sell order would be triggered 
that would trigger a response from another algo that would trigger another response. The market wasn't deep enough or liquid enough, and you got very sharp moves up or down um, and across asset classes. So, you know, if you want to invest in high yield bonds now, honestly, it's 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 ridiculous. If you want to get out of 20 million position in a high yield bond, good luck. It'll take you a week or 10 days to get out of that position, assuming you can find a credible price. Same with, I mean, I love investment trust and I love investing in investment trust and some of the discounts on offer are quite attractive. Liquidity is just pathetic. So so that's one of the reasons why, you know, we. what I like about treasuries is that you get that liquidity premium for free because they're the go-to asset when markets dislocate. So if markets dislocate, not only are you going to be getting a capital gain because treasuries presumably going up, but you've also got the asset that everybody wants. So once something's fallen 20%, you can then sell your treasury and buy a stock that had fallen 20 or 30% or a bond that's fallen 10 You know, it, it's that, it's that. So that's what I think was a lot of what was going People just trying to get into their heads. Hang on a minute. We've been in a zero to negative interest rate environment. And now the major central bank in the world is in a rate rising mood. The rhetoric is very hawkish. You know, how are we going to solve for this situation? And I think that impacted emerging markets because of the vast amount of dollar debt that emerging markets now have and how that plays on the commodity complex. It, in, in the latter end of the year, impacted U.S. equities and European equities. Brexit, obviously, was always a bit of an overhang. So just generally speaking, there wasn't a safe haven to go to except for treasuries. And again, to the point about why you should buy something, there is no credit risk in treasuries, okay, or guilt, so because you'll always get get paid back in nominal amount. Even if you buy Apple bonds, there is credit counterparty risk. It's very low, but it's there. Whereas in treasuries, it's zero. That's a that's, so, a, that's a that's a very fair point. And just to just to share an anecdote on the topic of high frequency trading, I don't know if I mentioned this one before, but it's a bit of a bit of a pearl. Um, I was with some some traders last year, and we were talking about you know, trend following, and that's a separate, probably for a separate podcast. But uh, you know why, why trend following's not been a, a particular success over the last couple of years. But they one one of the guys there was a high frequency trader, and somebody asked him, "What's the longest longest you ever held a position?" And he said, two and a half seconds." <laughs> <laughs> that's a lifetime. Exactly, luxury. Yeah, luxury. That. Yeah. But it is, it is, you see, and then that's it. The markets have, from when we were lads just changed so dramatically. And I know people make the comparison with 87 where, you know, there were all these portfolio insurance systems in place and, you know, how that fed on itself because once you triggered one stop, you then triggered the next stop and it just fed on itself. And I think a lot of that stuff is in the markets now that people don't really understand how this is going to play out because decisions are made in nanoseconds. And stops are filled, and gaps, markets gap down, and in it's it's it can get quite hairy. So, you know, the, one of the strategies we have is uh, the comparison I made was it's like being in a actually let's do a, use a better comparison because Warren Buffett has so many good quotes. It's like the guy he talks about the baseball, where you wait for your pitch. You don't have to swing, even if it's between your shoulder and your knee, and at the right hand over the plate, you don't have to swing. So you wait and you wait till the pitcher gets tired, till the fielders become distracted, and then you switch, and then you hit. The trouble is that the way fund management business works now, you know, if you hold too much cash or if you're not fully invested or if you're not trading it frequently, people say, what are you doing? Why have you got my money? What am I paying you for? You know? And so clients have a lot of, and their advisors have some of the blame to bear because if Tim or I are holding 15% cash or 30% in one-year treasuries, people are going, what am I paying you for? And that's that's part of the problem is that people feel they have to be seen to be doing something. Um, and sometimes the best thing is to do nothing. Well, just to give you another one of those, apparently the best way to stop a goal in a in a penalty shootout is for the goalie not to move. If he yeah, and, and that's true, actually. The way people have been drawn into the fang stocks, if if they go the way they were going up uh, over the last few years, money's just more money just gets drawn in because you can't. 
it's not a question of whether you like the trade. It's just that you're competitively looking worse and worse. The question is, is this the biggest top we've ever seen? The mother of all tops, as I've described it. And I believe that we are in this process. It's just a question of, is it now or will it continue to go down and this is now the top here? Or do we get one more phase up? And towards the end of last year, I was beginning or beginning of this year, I was thinking that we'd get one more move up after this big sell off. But then then we would be at the ultimate top. Um, And I, I think listening to what you've said and what other people have said, uh, whilst I try to keep an independent view, it does seem to fit in with that. And it will be interesting to see um, how well the market does re- recover from this point, if indeed it does. Um, it's done pretty well so far. It probably needs a bit of a pullback, even from a short-term perspective. But yeah. but longer term, it, it feels like perhaps... The, the, the broad brush strategy for me is that it will go up and then we will see the top and it will come down again. And because people have been programmed to buy into this particular retracement, they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, remember that panic in 2018? You know, it, it, it was a great buying opportunity. And so they'll see it like that. But at, at some point, the only, well, the only thing you can guarantee in markets is change. And that means that there will be a retracement. It won't come back from. So, yes, you can create short-term volatility and you can create very large moves in a short space of time. The question is, can they stay there? Will there be the value there for the investors to jump in, the longer-term players? Or when they back away from the market and go, no, 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 we don't like this. And that could be for any number of reasons. If they decide that there's no value there, then that's when the market goes down and stays down. And and that's that's a risk that we're running into uh, at some point. I mean, I'm sure, you, again, the statistics fail me slightly, but something close to $3 trillion of share buybacks have taken place in the last, I don't know how many years. And that's been a big... But going back to the question about momentum is that obviously momentum works both ways. So if you're a momentum trader, you're buying into the Netflix, you're buying into Amazon, you're buying it. But when the momentum rolls over, then obviously the short trade comes on, and that again helps to depress, to make stocks a little bit more on the downside anyway, but more volatile. Um, but I think that um, because central banks, you know, it's like, like the player at the table, they're so heavily invested in this Ponzi scheme now that I agree with you that, that there will be a top, there'll be a sell off. But I think it'll go even worse than Japan. I think rather than just buying stock ETFs, they'll go more like the Swiss Central Bank, and they'll actually buy stocks, buy corporate credit, buy ETFs, buy... Because I, I, I think that's, you, you know, you can't just keep buying treasuries because you've probably bought as many as you probably can or mortgage-backed securities. Or I really think that, you know, if it gets nasty, central banks will go all in. I don't know, yeah. what do you think, Tim? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a risk of that. I think you're absolutely right. And the... Well, what this has in common, you know, just to try and wrap up some of these threads, what this has in common is basically overreach on the part of the establishment, whether it's the, you know, the central banking establishment or the political establishment. And they're, they're, increasingly, it's difficult to tell the difference between the two. I guess it's like a poker game where where the, the table and the stakes are so big, you can't just can't back away from it. And they can't. And so it's just, it's just got to, they've just got to keep going because there's no other strategy. And, and, and that's the difference is that you, me, Tim, most people listening in here, we're price sensitive. Central banks are price insensitive. They don't mind if they buy Apple at $90, $190 or $290, you know, because they just don't care. That's not the point. The point is just get money back in the system again. And that, and that's where they, what, what, what a characteristic they share with politicians. So there's only three ways of spending money. You can spend your money on yourself. You can spend your money on other people. Or you can spend other people's money on other people. Which of those categories of spending do you think is likely to be best practiced? Like to have the best effects? It's not going to be the last two. Absolutely. Which is why I think if, if we get to this stage where, and, and Japan has been a good rehearsal for everything else, um, then that's when I think people start losing faith in fiat currency because if people are just printing money to buy stocks, buy corporate bonds, high yield bonds, property, whatever. You know the game's over from a fiat currency point of view. So I think it's probably time we we move over to media picks. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, let's go for it. 
Mike, you probably know the drill, but I don't know if you remember from last time that we like to get a media pick from our guests. Tim, what have you got for us this week? The highlight of my festive viewing was Trust, the FX TV series Trust. Oh, yeah, about the Getty family. Exactly, the 1973 kidnapping of John Paul Getty III. Uh, did you see it, Paul? I've, I haven't seen it because I saw All the Money in the World, which I thought was a very good film. I'd, I'd really recommend it. I thought it was utterly gripping. And yeah, I, like you, Paul, I'd seen All the Money in the World. And so I thought, well, this, this feels a bit like overkill. So I wasn't in any hurry to see the miniseries. But make the time for it because it's absolutely superb. Oh, wow, Tim. View. I'm very pleased you've said that because I started to watch it and I did then think, oh, yeah, I've kind of seen this. And it was quite slow at the uh, beginning, it, wasn't it? I think it's worth pursuing. Well, it's, really? it's got a quite a leisurely pace, but I, for me, I know I found that it never dragged at all. And it's held together by, I don't know the name of the, the guy who plays uh, young Paul or, or the golden hippie, as the Italians refer to him. But uh, Donald Sutherland is, is always watchable and he's, and he's yeah. certainly watchable in this thing. Um, but there's just a topic that I'd highlight. We could maybe touch on it in a, in a subsequent podcast because uh, I'm also reading a book called Fortune's Children at the moment, and that's basically the tale, the fall of the house of Vanderbilt. Um, and there's a quote from Cornelius Vanderbilt. He's the guy that made, made the fortune. Any fool can make a fortune. It takes a man of brains to hold on to it after it's made. Wow. Which I think is a, a cracking quote. And it, it, it's, it's in line with that phrase about shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Yes. The, yeah. the founder generation makes the business, makes the money. The second generation basically may or may not make it last. And the third generation basically squanders it. And we're back, you know, and then the, the wheel turns all over again. So it's really just uh, uh, highlighting the issue that it is. If it's difficult to make money, it's arguably even more difficult to keep it. Uh, and that, I think, is really the, the problem, the dilemma facing every investor today. That's the heart of your investment strategy, isn't it, Tim? Ab because... Absolutely. Capital preservation in real terms is the only objective that, that, that really matters to us. Well, I'll, I'll give you mine while um, we give um, Mike a little bit of time to, to have a think. Cuckoo's a BBC series that I thought was absolutely fantastic. If you... I recommended it before and the first series you could just sort of jump to the end and then watch from the second series on and it was just absolute comedy gold. It was just fantastic stuff, brilliant writing. Uh, I think it's Greg Davies is the lead and uh, Hollywood A-listers uh, have, have appeared in it. Um, but uh, it, it then went into season five and... Which which is just out now, and it was it honestly literally crashed like the market. It was it's just awful. I don't know quite what's happened. Um, I, I guess you'd have to blame the writing really because there's nothing else to blame. But it just has gone from hero to zero. Um, really not good. So that's a real shame. So when I saw that, I was like, oh god, I've got I've got to mention it because I've given it as a recommendation. And I still think Tim, you probably haven't got around to watching it, but if, if you, I think you'd find it particularly funny. On the back of your recommendation, I did I did watch Bandersnatch. Oh yeah, uh, which I which I thought was superb. Oh brilliant! Um, not 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 just a, a gimmick, but gen genuinely, you know, innovative, interesting, thought provoking stuff. The only the only and it's not their fault. The only thing I'd say is I, I watched it in a state of. Uh, I was mildly hungover, which made the whole experience even more surreal and unsettling. Wow. So basically, so that's a piece of advice for anybody. If you're going to watch a, a Charlie Brooker uh, piece, then try not to do so whilst hungover because it can <laughs> it can intensify all of the wrong things. He's amazing, isn't he? I mean, he's actually... he is. He is amazing. He is a genius. I don't know if you know uh, Bandersnatch, Mike, but basically, no. do, you, do, you, do you remember or you may know the the these were, I remember these in the 80s. There used to be little books you could get where there were things like sort of do-it-yourself adventures. And basically, you'd get to the end of a chapter and then you had a choice. So you could, so in other words, if you want to, you know, open the door, go to page 30. If you want to leave, you know, do something else, go to page 35. So you're kind of theoretically in charge of the plot as it unfurls. And, mm. Bandes and Bandersnatch is a, a Charlie Brooker creation on, well, I watched it on Netflix. Uh, and I, you have to watch it on a computer because it is, is interactive. So you'll have to watch it on some digital device. But you have exactly the same thing. You, so basically every five, ten minutes or whatever, you're, 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 you're given a choice. So does he, you know, does he pour drink on his computer or does he 
you know, does he have a go at his dad? Uh, and, and you're in control of that. Of the, of the, I like, of the, I like the premise. Yeah, it's very it's, good. It's really fascinating. So, yeah, so um, I think, I don't know, have you, have you, either of you seen Ozark? Yes. You see, I really like that. I mean, when it, when it was described to me, I thought, oh, God. And it started off a little bit slowly, and then it just picks up, and I think we're at the end of second or third season. I'm, not, I'm waiting now for the fourth one. But I really I, I just it's very compelling viewing because, you know, again, I don't want to sort of make the analogy too extreme, but you know, between what's happening in the global economy and central banks and this guy that did you know the story, Tim? No. So this you should watch it, a guy in Chicago and financial advisor, and they end up helping somebody launder money and then they just get in way above their heads. And once you're in, you just you've got to keep going or you you're dead. And the things they do in the enterprise they show to make sure that they stay alive and in business it's a bit like central bankers you know they, they probably started off thinking we can game it a little bit and then before they knew it the system had overtaken them and they were hostages to fortune but i i i think you'd like it tim i really do yeah i, I do too it's, it is fantastic that's a great recommendation yeah brilliant so look mike thank you so much for coming it's on pleasure, today. it's been a real pleasure to have you on and uh, thanks very much. Enjoyed it. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. Thank you, and thanks again, Tim. And for, it's been a it's been a cathartic experience to get the frustrations of Brexit off off my chest, and hopefully yours too. And uh, yeah, so thanks again, Tim. Pleasure. And uh, look forward to the next look forward to the next time. Thank you, Tim, and for all our listeners and all our supporters. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. Have a fantastic couple of weeks and we'll speak to you soon. Take care. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.